So with that, I uh, want to talk to you today about testing in life. So, and we're not talking about math tests or spelling tests, you know, thankfully, not that. But I want to talk to you to how I've been tested in my life. There was this time in my life that God tested my integrity. He tested my ability to manage money. He tested my ability to handle stress. God tested my ability and my integrity. Now you may say, what kind of test would that be? And, and here's the thing, God tested me this way by having children. Okay. No offense to anybody in the room, <laughs> but God attested our, my ability, Mary's ability, because we had children. So it's a life-changing event to get married, right? And then it's a life-changing event to have children. So with our marriage, Mary and I got married, and then uh, life was great. We're on the church softball team, playing co-ed softball. And about seven weeks after we're married, Mary goes, you know, I don't feel right. So she went home and took a pregnancy test, and it was positive. So seven weeks into marriage, and so, so it was a great big test. Then she went to the doctor, and the doctor said, yeah, you're six weeks pregnant. So we've been married seven weeks, and she's six weeks pregnant. I want to tell you something. That was not the plan. <laughs> it was not the plan, man. We didn't want to, you know, that was not the plan right then to have children right then. And so... Uh, everything got twisted around. So Mary got very sick and that whole puking thing, you know, and <laughs> like six times in one day and all of a sudden she can't work anymore and I'm having to work more and I'm trying to go to graduate school. We had plans. She was going to school and then I was, you know, we had all these plans and they're all getting adjusted because uh, things are changing. And so we're going to this test and then, and then, and then we have a baby. And I remember being in the delivery room, and so excited, so excited. I turned to the doctor and said, I want to cut the cord. I want to cut the cord. And it's back when I, I don't think that happened very often. And so he goes, oh, okay, you know, and I got to cut the cord and took baby home, you know, it's just, oh, just blissful. And then the baby has colic. Jake has colic. Do you know what that is? That's when your baby cries nonstop and your brain cells explode. <laughs> And so, I don't know if you knew this, so young people, I just want to tell, here's what happens. Your parents were normal till they had you. <laughs> it's, I, okay, I digress, but that's just exactly true. And then, and then all of a sudden, you were normal, you know, I thought I was normal. And then everything's, you know, all these tests come along in life, right? It's like I'm being tested. And, I, and God is finding out just what I'm made of, right? Finding out if I'm going to be, you know, sticking faithfully and am I going to handle this stress well and, and all of those things. And man, we had the stress of the youth group. Five months, six months, seven months, eight months, whoosh, we made it. You know, I could tell the youth group kids, and the, yep, they didn't have sex before they're married. So, you know, you know, I had that stress. And then, and then we had financial stress all of a sudden. I lost my health insurance. I said, why did I lose my health insurance? You didn't tell us your wife is pregnant and you have an individual policy and that ticked me off. Anyway, so I had all these stresses going on, right? So it's like a test. And then over the next weeks and months and years, you know, you just kind of have that test in life. Now, some of you in the room today and those of you watching me online, I just want to tell you, you're going, you might be under a test right now, a difficulty. And no one sails through life without these tests in front of them. And that's why we're looking at the life of Joseph in the Bible. So here's our big idea today. It's right here on the screen. And here we go. Start a new life, begin a new test. And it seems to me 
every time you have a season of change, you're starting something new in your life, a new job, you went to school, children, marriage, I mean, whatever it is for you, something new, there's going to be a new test with it. Something, something is going to be right there in this testing of you. And God either brought it into your life or he allowed it into your life. One of the two, but he's going he's to use that. Now, we're going to use Joseph from the Old Testament as a case study for this. Because Joseph has been, let me give you a little recap. He's the favorite of his son Jacob. Uh, dad's Jacob. And he gets this ornamental coat. It's kind of like a new Ferrari. Got a great gift. None of the other kids got one, so the other kids are jealous. Plus, Jacob has a dream, Joseph has a dream that he's going to serve, he's going to be the leader of all of his brothers. He's the youngest one, and, and they're jealous of him. They hate his guts, and then they throw him into a pit, and then sell him off to a traveling group of uh, Midianites, and they take him to Egypt, where Joseph is going to serve as a slave. So, Joseph is loved by his father, hated by his brothers, thrown into a pit, ends up in the house of Potiphar, and he's starting a new life. And, and that's Joseph. He's starting something really brand new. And so we're going to pick that story up in Genesis chapter 39. So if you have a Bible turned there, if you have a church app, it'll be on your church app, all these notes. So we see in verse 39, it says, now Joseph, so we're starting a new section. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, so that he prospered and lived in the house of his Egyptian uh, master. So Joseph's starting a new life. He's hundreds of miles from his home. In fact, he's never going to go back there again, but he's hundreds of miles away, from, and it's just a culture shock, right? So he lived in Israel, that land of, of uh, the, in the Middle East, the Israel, and now he's going to Egypt, and it's, everything is different. It's like Steve Hill moves from rural Kansas to Eugene, Oregon. Culture shock. Culture shock. I mean, Joseph ends up there, and they speak a different language. I mean, they speak Egyptian, and it look, the letters look different, and he doesn't know what's going on. And so the year is actually 1875 B.C. Scholars know this for sure. And um, so he has all this new cultural stuff going on. And with the Egyptians, you know, Joseph believes in one God, one true God, the living God. But they believe in many gods. In fact, for an Egyptian, Pharaoh is God. And in fact, they have, a, a, they have Ra, the sun god. They have a Nun, the water god. They have all these different gods. And in fact, scholars know that the Egyptians had 1,500 different idols or, or gods that they worshipped. So that was all different to Joseph, right? It's just a culture shock in his life. And then the Nile River is a, is, is a god itself. They worship the Nile River. And people live there. It's the center of Egyptian life and culture. And they depend upon the Nile River flooding so it would irrigate all the property around that area. And so Joseph is there. It's very different, just very different for him. And he has to go through all of these things. So there's a clash of culture. It's kind of like this. You're a Jesus follower, and you're clashing with the culture in which you live. The culture at your work is different. The values that you hold, the convictions, the things that you are, 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 are staying true to are so different than those around you. And so it's kind of like Joseph 
in this as well. So this whole idol worship and this whole spiritual thing is very different for Joseph. Now I want you to notice a couple things. That Joseph, in our text, he doesn't throw a pity party. He, he doesn't just wallow, and we're going to see this, he doesn't wallow in self-pity. And he doesn't have this thing about just sitting and wishing. Some of us do that when we go through changes and we get tested. We just sit and wish that things would be different. You know, oh, I just wish it would be different. I just wish for the good old days. Joseph, he doesn't do that. And there's no hint that Joseph tries to escape and go back home. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Why would he want to go back home? His brothers hate his guts. They tried to kill him. His family is so dysfunctional. Why would you go back to that? Here's what I've noticed with some people. They get tested, and it's difficult, so they go back to their old lifestyle. Right, right? And they, and they kind of romanticize how good it used to be, and they go back to this other thing, which is terrible for them. Don't go back to what your life used to be like. Don't do that. And so Joseph has this incredible time, and, and he ends up in the home of this guy Potiphar. Every time I read that word, I, I think of the movie with Jimmy Stewart. It's a wonderful life, but different Potiphar there. So uh, Potiphar is uh, basically secretary of defense of Egypt. You know, he's a big shot. And uh, Joseph ends up in his home. It's been a three-week, three or four-week journey probably in his camel caravan, and he... He's bought, and he ends up in the home of this guy, Potiphar, and this guy is a captain of the guard. It's a very prestigious position. He's extremely powerful, and God is placing him right where he wants him to be because Joseph doesn't know how the story is going to unfold. You and I know because maybe we read ahead, but Joseph doesn't know that as well. Let's look at our next verse, verse 3, and it, and it says this, when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. So Joseph looks like to me he starts at the bottom of the bottom. He's a slave, and and then he rises in the ranks, and Potiphar sees something in him, and he entrusts his entire business, let's put it that way, uh, to Joseph as well. Now, now in uh, Egyptian, they had a pecking order in Egypt. And originally, Joseph would have started out as what we call a herper, two words. And then he moves up and up and up to the highest level he could attain as a slave, and there's a different word for that. I am harper is how, to, how they say it in Egyptian. And so he rises to this level and he becomes in charge of something incredible. And I think that's just part of the story that in this testing of this new culture and this new place and his family hates his guts, he rises to the top. He becomes top dog at this the state. What, did, what do you think Potiphar saw in him? I'm just speculating because the text doesn't tell me, but I'm thinking he sees his demeanor. He's not trying to escape. He's, he's loyal, so he sees that. And he must see that Joseph has some leadership skills, right? He's a leader. And Potiphar sees that. 
And Joseph must have had incredible management skills to run his affairs, right? So he's, he sees that his character is loyal. There's some integrity there. And he sees his abilities. And we're going to see this later on as Joseph takes over much of the governmental responsibilities of the whole kingdom of Egypt, the Egyptian empire. And so Joseph must have had these incredible Incredible skills. Now, in the text here, it says the Lord gave him, look at this, success. The Lord gave him success. God was with him right in the midst of this, of this situation. And, the, and Moses, who's writing Genesis, wants to make sure that we know that it is God giving him success. The Lord is. It's not necessarily that Joseph was his talented guy, although he is talented, but we need to understand it's, it's God that gave him all of these things. Now then when we see this word Lord in the Bible here, it's the word, I'm going to call it the personal name of God, Yahweh. It's found many times in the Old Testament. And usually in your Bible translation, this word Lord is capitalized, signifying it's the word Yahweh. And so Yahweh, the very personal creator of the universe, who knows everything, is with him and giving him success right there. Now, why is this important? It's because Joseph's great-grandfather, his name was Abraham. There's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And Joseph knows that a promise has been made to his great-grandfather. And here it is in Genesis chapter 12, this promise made to him. And it says this, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and bless you. So this is a promise made, and Joseph knows that. So it's all part of fulfilling this promise that they're going to be a great nation. But they need to get to Egypt first. It's part of God's plan. So here we are, generations removed from Abraham, and the promise is becoming fulfilled. Not because Joseph is such a talented person, but because God is always faithful to his promises. When God promises you something, God is faithful to fulfill it. He may not fulfill it when you want him to. It may be next week, next year, 10 years. It may be after you are dead and gone. God fulfills promises to you. This is really important. God is faithful. And then we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 39, verse 5. It says, from the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed, his, blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. Blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in his house and in his field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, like a younger version of Steve Hill. You knew that joke was coming, right? I just asking. Okay. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Okay, here's the test. It's coming, right? It's coming. And it's very clear that Mrs. Potiphar is in charge. And she says to him, the text says, Come to bed. Now, your Bible version may say, Come lie down with me. And... I'll give you the exact Hebrew translation, which is sex now. That's what, it, that's what she's saying, sex right now. I mean, this is a real offer. There's no doubt about it. 
I mean, and Joseph was like maybe 17 or 18 or 19 at this point. Right? I mean, he's young, and you have this Mrs. Potiphar saying, Hey, let's get into bed right here. No messing around. Come over here. Right? It's a real offer right then. It can be easily viewed in today's terms as sexual harassment or something like that, but not in that culture as well. You know, she's flirting with him. There's going to be, she wants a sexual encounter. But here's what happens in verse 8. It says, But he refused... He says, with me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with, with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So I want you to notice, in fact, if you have your Bible, circle the word refused. It's a choice he makes. It's a decision that comes to him. It's a conviction he has. And he says, I'm going to refuse this. That's an incredible thing for an 18-year-old, right? A 19-year-old. It's just an incredible moment. And then in verse 12, it says, she caught him by his cloak. So later on we read and said, come to bed with me. So later on, he's in the house with her, but he left his cloak. That would be like a jacket, by the way in and ran out of the house and went when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house she called her household servant said look she said to them this hebrew has been brought to make to to us to make sport of us he came in here to sleep with me but i screamed i read this several times uh, this week and i thought how joseph loses his coat of many colors Chapter 37, now he's losing a different coat right here, right? And it's a different test he's going under. And, and uh, she makes this accusation against him. Come make sport of us. He's making fun of us. He's mocking us, is the word mocking us. So we have a false accusation here. Sometimes we can face false accusations that are of a moral kind, like this. And sometimes we can face false accusations just concerning our incompetence. Somebody can say you're not competent at something and they're accusing you of not fulfilling uh, uh, something or performing well, right? So we can be falsely accused of things. And one of the things I noticed in the story is that Joseph is falsely accused and he handles it really well. He doesn't fight against it in the terms that we might. Then in verse 17, she told him this She's telling her husband this story. That Hebrew slave you brought to us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Then in verse 19, when his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Literally, that word means to turn red in the face. He's ticked off. And in verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. You know, one of the interesting things is he probably should have executed him for that. That would have been the normal thing to happen. But I believe that even though Potiphar's ticked off at this situation, he likes Joseph. And instead of killing him, he sends him to prison. And in fact, my theory is that he's actually in charge of this prison. That explains why he rises to the top in the next chapter. He's captain of the guard. 
And the prison he's going to is where they hold top-notch political prisoners. Right? So Joseph needed to rub shoulders with these political prisoners in the story. But Potiphar likes Joseph, so he doesn't execute him. He's just going to send him away to prison. And then we pick up the story. It says, but while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison. Wow. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph, gave him success in whatever he did. I find it interesting just thinking about the story of Joseph that he just has this up and down experience in life. You know, his father loves him. His brothers hate him. Gets sent to Egypt. He's at the top of his game in Potiphar's house. Then this accusation, he's down in prison. It's just like this yo-yo, just up and down. And it's almost like every time Joseph gets a new start, he gets tested again. It's a series of testing. So my question to you is this, why does God test us? Why is this happening to us? Because when we view the things that happen to us as God's test or a trial, we need to be aware that God is watching us. And we need to be aware of the purposes that God has. I'm going to give you a couple purposes. So here's the first one on your screen. God cares more about your development than your dream. See, one of the reasons that God tests us is because he's trying to develop, picture this, spiritual muscle on you. And when we go through difficult times, our faith is increased. When we go through difficult times, our character is refined. God uses difficulty, trials, testing to mold you into the person he wants you to be. It's kind of like the guy with a, with a you know, a piece of granite and he's molding it into something, chipping away. All of us here have things that need to be chipped away. God is using trials and testing for that. Now, here's the thing. Usually, in, in my observation, you start off with small tests in life, and it builds spiritual muscle. And you learn to trust God with something small, and then something else comes along. And you say, you know what? I trusted God before. I'll trust him now. It's, it, you build upon it. And that's what testing does in our testing is significant. In fact, James, brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus says, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that it produces maturity in your life. So testing brings maturity. If it wasn't for testing in my life, I would still be weak, spiritually weak. And I look at some of the most significant tests in my life, and I know that God brought those so I would grow up spiritually and not be immature. Without testing, without passing the test, you will be immature spiritually. Here's the second thing I want to talk about with this whole testing thing for him is that sexual temptation is different than all others. It is different than, than, than all others. And here's why, because the consequences are more difficult. The consequences change. 
Now then, in our culture, this is like, holy cow, you know, it's like opening up a can of worms here, Pandora's box. Now, it'd be easy for me to thump away at internet pornography, you know, and some pastors want to belabor and, and talk a lot about gay marriage or a host of other things. But what I see as a critical issue for Jesus' followers today is simply living together and not being married. And in fact, it would be like this, like, I'm acting like I'm married, but I'm really not married. And over the years, I've seen so many of these things, and, and what I'm noticing is just like a normal part of life. He goes, well, I just need to test it out, see if we're the right couple for each other. And little do they know, statistically, you're more likely to divorce that way. And it's one of the huge issues of the early church in the first century. I mean, we're not the only ones. The first generation of Jesus followers had the same difficulty as well. That's why it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that Paul says, do not be joined with a prostitute. And you're saying, well, thankfully, Steve, you know, I'm not with prostitutes. But what's the point of that? Well, the point of it is that God created us in a certain way, and he created marriage in a certain way, and he created our sex lives in a certain way. There's a design to it, and when we live outside of God's design, there are repercussions and consequences. Every time you see the word immorality in the New Testament, track me closely, every time you see that word, it's talking about sex outside of marriage. That's what, that's what it means. The Greeks knew that. Jesus knew that's why he didn't need to explain it. Out of the heart comes immorality, he says. It's because it's such a powerful driving force in our life, sexuality. And therefore, therefore, it's a temptation like none other. I just want to implore people today to think through these things as well. God created Adam and Eve, and there was a design to it. That Adam would get to know Eve and then they would have sexual relations. There's an order to the process that's helpful as well. I was, uh, many years ago, a uh, guy in the church, he uh, started coming to church, then he uh, became a Christian, and he became an usher, and then uh, he goes, one day he came to me and he says, Steve, I'm just living with my, living with my uh, girlfriend, and we have kids, and that didn't seem right. I said, okay, don't convince me. And then we began to talk, and he goes, Let's, I, we think we ought to get married, and we picked this date six weeks away. I said, okay. I said, but uh, why don't you move apart? I mean, there was stunned silence on the side of my desk, and, and uh, we'll just say his name is Robert, because I think that was his name. So... And he goes, Steve, I don't know. You want us to move apart? And we were explaining this whole sex thing. And he goes, I understand. That's probably a good idea, but where would I go? I said, man, you just figure it out. <laughs> figure it out. And so Robert figured it out. And they moved apart until they got married. So then we show up at the local Grange Hall for the wedding. And Robert was an ex-biker. He did four or five years in prison. And and he was just a rough guy, okay? He's just rough. And I go to the, go to the Grange Hall. I'm looking around at all his friends. And I'm looking, well, it must have been prison release day. I mean, that sounds judgmental, I know. But it was just a crowd he hung out with, all his biker buddies. And, and I, you know, I'm there in a suit. And Robert's there. And 
and they're standing right here in front of me, and I remember going, Robert, I whispered to him, can I tell everybody you're a Christian? And he goes, oh yeah, tell them all I'm a Christian. <laughs> tell all my friends my story for me. So I began to tell Robert's story, and here's what happened. Robert began sobbing, and snot became out of his nose. I mean, I've done a lot of weddings. I've never seen so much snot in my life. <laughs> this is coming down, and he's just bawling, bawling about this, and and, and he goes, I want to say something. <laughs> I don't know if I want Robert saying anything, but and he just affirms everything I've been saying about following Jesus. And, and uh, we're looking for, for, you know, tissues to wipe his nose. I mean, he'd already done this enough of this. I'm not kidding. It was just all over the place. He was so emotional about this very moment. And then he talked, all his friends knew he'd moved out. And it was almost like this great statement about what God could do in his life. And that's so true for us when it comes to this area of sexuality. So here's my question for you. What or who is the Mrs. Potiphar in your life? What is that incredible temptation that you face right now? What is it that is dragging you down? What is it that is holding you back? It could be many different things, right? It could be the, the internet clicks that you make, what you do at work. It could be embezzling some money. You're so over your head with stealing. It could be a whole series of things. But Joseph has to deal with Mrs. Potiphar, and there may be a Mrs. Potiphar in your life, and the question is going to be, how are you going to handle that? What are you going to do? What's your next step? And here's what Joseph did. Number three, resistance requires running. When it comes to sexual temptation, don't stand there and go, I think I can handle this on my own. Run away. Just run away. Now, when you don't, here's, it's a cycle. You have failure. You have guilt. And then you pray about it. And you think it's going to be okay, but it's not. And then there's failure and guilt. And you just have this cycle of failure and guilt. And you can never get over the hump. And it's just this nasty cycle that you live in. The Bible knows all about that because the Bible's full of real people who make real mistakes. The Apostle Paul said at one point, the very thing I want to do, I can't do. The good that I want to do, I don't end up doing. I had the best of intentions, so it doesn't work out. And it comes to this area of your life, just run. Just run away. All the temptation that you face, it's pretty temporary. It's pretty temporary. You get a lot of fun out of it, and there's going to be a decrease in enjoyment with it, and you're going to have the consequences now, here's the difference. Sometimes I'm talking about running away and fleeing. Some people want to stand in there and justify it. They just want to justify it. And, and they have all kinds of reasons. My, my spouse isn't having sex with me, so I'm going to go somewhere else for it. My company is underpaying me, so I'm going to, I'm going to skim a little off the top. They haven't, been, they haven't been fair with me. My professor didn't grade my papers right, so I'm going to cheat. I'm cheating at school because everyone else did it. Do you see the justification of things? 
don't justify your sin. Deal with it. Admit it. Resistance. And there are some practical ways of escape. You can have an accountability partner. Accountability in life where somebody's asking you some tough questions in your life. Don't try to go through these kinds of things on your own. It'll be difficult for you. Have somebody that you can talk to. Now, as a pastor for over 30 years, I can tell you that sometimes I talk with people and they'll say this to me, Steve, I want to tell you something I've never told anyone else. And I get privy to people's personal lives. And I consider it a great honor somebody would trust me with that. And I have great hope for people who tell me those things. You know why? Because they're finally admitting something. And there will be freedom when they admit something. And when you admit it to somebody else, you have an accountability partner. I can't be everybody's accountability partner. That's why you need to be in a group. That's why you need a relationship. That's why we have lots of groups at Grace Community Fellowship. I don't feel judgmental when people say that, these things to me. I feel hope for them, like they can finally overcome some things. It'll be beautiful because they're finally coming to that realization in life that something can change. Walking with God, walking with Him is the solution to this. Walking with Jesus. So here's the thing that I noticed. In Genesis chapter 39, the whole story of Potiphar, about five times it says the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. In chapter 37, which is the chapter's brothers hate his guts, throw him in the pit, the word Lord or God is never found. It's almost like God is absent from that scene. But in chapter 39, as he's going through the testing, the Lord is with him. The Lord gave him success. And all he did, the Lord helped him to prosper. What's the key? Walking with God. Walking with God. And then we read this in Genesis chapter 39. We read it, but he refused with me in charge. He told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in his house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a thing against God? And, and Joseph has this incredible self-respect. And he has incredible respect for his master Potiphar. But above all, above all, he knows that he'd be sinning against God. It's sinning against God. Some of you are, might be thinking, okay, I've blown it. What do I do now? And the first thing I think is just to admit it to God. It's just to admit it. Lord, I've done this. Lord, I was thinking about this. Lord, this is what's going on. And then you change your thinking about it. That's called repentance. You begin to turn away from it. You're thinking and, and run away from it. Run away from the sin and run to Jesus. You have no other hope. But I want to tell you something. You are never past redemption. You're never past it. Jesus is always there with you. Admit it, repent of it, and run away and run to Jesus Christ. Here's what we do after we run away. Number four, if you're taking notes, it's simply this. Courageously stick to your convictions. 
And I think of Joseph, and he has these convictions, and he's courageous about it. And in this moment with Potiphar, Mrs. Potiphar, you know, it's probably right then, in that moment, for 20 seconds, for 30 seconds, for a minute, he has incredible courage. It's like this burst of, of courageous thinking, and he says, no, I'm not doing that. It's one of the biggest tests of all time for Joseph because God is testing him. And Joseph passed the test. It's a critical test. And he ends up, because of the test, suffering unjustly. There's a lot of injustice in the world, a lot of injustice. You've experienced injustice. You've experienced some suffering at the hands of somebody else. Experience those things. But Joseph refused, and he stuck to his convictions. So you might have to make a courageous conviction to stand by, courageously stand by your decision not to cook the books at your workplace when the boss tells you to. You might have to stand courageously convic- you know, to your convictions when the boss says, hey, let's go out to dinner tonight and have a few drinks. And you know what that means. You have to stick to your convictions and the boss tells you to lie to a client. I mean, the list goes on and on of the courageous convictions that you need to, to make. And one of the greatest ones, the test that comes our way is the sexual temptation. It's so prolific in our culture. We just need to admit that. I bet you admit that. So I heard this story. I'm sure it's not true, but it sounds true. I like it, so I'll consider it true. Man and woman are on a business trip together. And uh, they're in, they're in a, uh, another country, and they need to take a train overnight somewhere. And it's one of those trains that have sleeping cars on them. But there was a big snafu, you know, and they're in the same sleeping car. And they're like, oh, we, I mean, um, we can't do that. That didn't look right. And, and they find, well, it's just for one night. Yeah, it's just for one night. And they begin to talk. And he goes, well, why don't I just sleep on the top bunk and you take the bottom one? And, you know, it's just for one night. You're married to somebody, I'm married to somebody, but we'll just do this for, for one night. And, and about 10 minutes into the sleeping arrangement, he's in the top bunk. He says to her, I'm a little cold. Could you get me a blanket? She says to him, why don't we act like we're married? And he says, that sounds good to me. And she says, good. Get down and get your own blanket. Get back up there. (laughs) Good for her, right? Good for her. Courageously stick to your convictions. And you got to decide now. And by that I mean before the situation comes. Job says, I will not look at a, a young maiden with my eyes. I will not be tempted. Job makes that, he makes that declaration. Now God is going to test us in some ways because he wants you to be developed. He wants you to be all that you can be. He wants you to be this person who has spiritual muscle, who's walking with him, who trusts him who is a person who prays and talks to him and interacts with God. God wants to know you personally. But like all relationships, it takes work. 
like all relationships, you come to him and he's coming to you and you can have this awesome intimacy with the God of the universe who created you. Why does God test us? Because he doesn't want to leave us the same as we were. Stand strong on Jesus and learn to walk with him. And you'll pass every test that comes your way. I'm going to pray right now. Maybe some of you have felt like, you know what? I, I, I need to talk to the Lord about my tests in my life. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we pause and we pray about the tests that are coming in our lives and the trials that we face. And God, we recognize that with those trials and tests, you are trying to mold us and to shape us. You are trying to develop spiritual muscle in our lives. And maybe right now you're facing some incredible temptations and struggles. And maybe your first step today is just simply admit it in your heart and say, Lord, this is, this is what I'm facing and, and I need your help. And that's a great prayer. God respects that. If your prayer is simply, Lord, I've blown it, you admit it. Then say, I need your help. And God will begin the wonderful process of putting spiritual muscle in your life. Heavenly Father, we thank you that trials and tests help us to become spiritually mature. And we pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.